Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with actor Mary-Kate Morrissey. Mary-Kate, or MK, is currently playing Janice on the first national tour of Mean Girls the Musical. Other national touring credits include Elphaba in Wicked and Sheila in Hair. Additional work includes Joan of Arc, Into the Fire at the Public, Elmer Gentry at the Signature, Lizzie the Musical at Portland Center Stage, Little Women at Syracuse Stage, and the workshops of Fun Home, Moulin Rouge, and Home Street Home, among many others. Mary-Kate has a BFA in musical theater from Syracuse University. Full disclosure, Mary-Kate and I went to school together, and she's one of my closest friends. We don't usually have actors on the podcast, but Mary-Kate has some pretty exciting, unusual, and fascinating twists and turns in her career I thought we could all benefit from hearing about. Of course, we talk all about Wicked and the long road, literally, it took to land the job of playing Elphaba eight times a week after being the standby for a year on tour. MK shares that the first time she auditioned for Elphaba, she didn't get it, and talks about what changed between her first and second victorious audition for this dream role. She also shares her Mean Girls audition story. I've never heard an audition story quite like it. She booked the job without even auditioning for the role she's playing and without even ever going in for the actual tour. You just need to hear her tell it. But most importantly, we talk about vocal health and the physical and emotional toll these massive roles take on a performer. The stuff you don't see on Playbill or Instagram. We talk about mid-show callouts. MK's been on both sides of these scary situations and how she was not only able to overcome them, but go on to help others. And don't worry if you don't know what a mid-show callout is. You're about to learn all about it. Mary-Kate is nothing short of incredible, and after this episode, I think you'll see why. She's hardworking, authentic, passionate, and brave. So without further ado, my conversation with an actual Elphaba and my dear friend, Mary-Kate Morrissey. I am here with one of my favorite people, probably on the planet, one of my oldest. It's like weird to say that you're like an old friend now because we like met in college, but you are an old friend. Um, I'm here with um, who I know is Mary-Kate Morrissey, others know by MK. And I'm so happy that we are sitting down and catching up, but also that you're talking on the podcast. It just means so much to me. Uh, I am so anything for you, Robbie. It's good to see your smiling face even if it's just on this computer computer screen. Yes, we are, um, of course, doing this remotely like the other episodes because um, we are <laughs> doing what everyone should be doing and like being safe and social distancing and doing all of that stuff. So I usually like to start out and talk to people about, you know, what they were doing when this all hit. Um, like in March when we all had to shelter in place, but then also like what you've been up to during the quarantine. I think a lot of artists are doing like a lot of different things during this time. Not that anyone needs to be Mm -hmm. doing anything, but I think it's pretty cool to hear what people have been up to and how they've been collaborating. And I know you have been up to some things. So I guess like tell us briefly about like what was going on in your life I think a lot of people know that you were on tour, but what was going on in your life uh, when in March when this all happened? And then what you've been up to recently with your BFF, Gina Claire? <laughs> yeah, so I was on the road with Mean Girls playing Janice, and we were in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And we had been playing to packed, sold-out houses, our, basically our entire run. And all of a sudden, the we watched our you know percentage of audience numbers go from like a hundred to eighty to sixty to forty to twenty, and it was absolutely crazy to look out and see like an empty, an empty theater. And so I called Jenna Claire and said, "We need to be doing something. This is this is an opportunity that we shouldn't miss. We have this free time." We've always wanted to work together. We've been coaching separately. We've been teaching classes separately. What if we, what if we made a virtual musical theater school? <laughs> Which she's always like, dream big, you know. She always encourages me to like go as high and as far and as fast as I can. So, she, so when I pissed, pitched that to her, she was like, let's do it. Let's go. Um, so we made a website that day, and I, I'm now a 
bona fide website designer. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Special skills. Amongst many other trades that I've picked up on the way. But we, we formed a business. We have an LLC. We, we asked for auditions. We got about, we thought that we, we created spots for 16 students and we ended up taking 30. Wow. And then, of, yeah. And then of those 30 in the second session, 19 of them came back. Cool. Um, yes, retention Yeah. Rates. And so I know. So we went from 30 to 50. Wow. And I know. And so then we went from four classes to seven. And now we're working on August. And um, I think that it's going to be it's going to be another 50 students. It's so cool. And we're starting to plan for the fall. What does it look like with these schools being shut down? What does what does after school theater, like theatrical life look like? What can we what can we offer these kids? Because what we've learned is that um, just like us, these students are so hungry for community, for the Broadway community, for that feeling of seeing shows or being around people who love musical theater. And to have your school shows canceled or to have your like semester in college canceled, like could you imagine? Like not being able to go to Marie's class or to Rodney's class. Like I, it's crazy to think that these kids have to find a way um, to supplement that knowledge. And so GC and I are like, who better than two working professionals who are just like on a forced break. And it's turning from something that was just like something that we would do to keep ourselves like entertained, not entertained, but like our, our creative buzz going. It's turned from that to like a huge passion, a huge passion project and like a real full-time job, which is so crazy. I never would have labeled myself teacher, but I find myself being that and, and stepping to that, stepping into that role and just loving it so much. Totally. And knowing you and like knowing your path and knowing how much, how dedicated you are to what you do. Like it's so, so makes sense to me that you're teaching now and that you are so good at teaching. It's just so exciting to see. So like just specifically for people who are maybe interested in taking your classes, and I'm going to put all the the website and all the info in the show notes for this. Um, and I'll post on like the Instagram and everything, like a link to all the information. So how many students are usually in a typical class and do you run it through Zoom? Yeah, we run it through Zoom and we have eight students in a class. So the, students, or the classes run about two and two hours long, sometimes a little bit over. Um, the age ranges are from eight to 30, kind of. And we so we have classes for younger kids, class for high school kids, and class for college students and beyond. That's kind of how we've like set up the grouping. And we find that that is really, really helpful because watching your peer work, you can learn so much from that. And we ask the kids to encourage each other and affirm what they've seen and um, if they see something that they learned, um, use it in their own work. And it's, it's fun to see that kind of like that process in their mind start to affect the work that they're doing. What, what is special about Jenna Claire and my mission, which is kind of like encouraging and fostering young talent, but also building confidence in, um, in people and um, giving them the tools to communicate and to step into spaces where um, it can be pretty nerve wracking. And what is special is we do a lot, a lot of one-on-one -on -one work in front of the class. And then we do a big recital at the end where the students invite their all their friends and family. Like, I think we have a limit of 100 or 150 people that can come and we meet their parents and we gush about them and then the parents get to gush about them for a second. And the, the emails that we've gotten from parents or from students have just been like so affirming of the work we're doing because they're, they're happy in quarantine. You know what I mean? They're, they're experiencing something that they would have never had an opportunity too, because we would have never done this. It, it's just been so life-giving in that way. So cool. And like, could you imagine like if when we were in high school or even college to like be able to take classes from like performers that from are Broadway, working. From Broadway's like, Glinda. Right. Well, and like from Elphaba and from Janice, like it's just so cool. And like, we would have loved it. And I just love that technology and, you know, finding like that light within the quarantine of like, you know, what, what can we do that maybe wouldn't have happened before? It's, it's like why this podcast was also born is to like 
bring information to people from the people who are actually doing it. That's part of my podcast too, is like, I want to hear from the people who are like in and out and doing it and working in those rooms every day. And your students are hearing all this from two people who are doing it, like who are in those audition rooms every day, singing those songs, working on the material and it effectively working. And I'm sure that, you know, you are learning just like like right along with your students. Um, like you're picking up things that they are working on and um, probably like applying it to yourself. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I feel like so often we we let go of the basics, right? The foundation. But the reason why it's a foundation is because you can build a house on it. So it's like if we go back to who are you talking to and what do you want? You can solve so many things. I, I know that for myself, I get caught up in my little ticks that I do, my little physicality, like things that I, I have to shake out and that becomes like what my rehearsal space becomes about as opposed to if, and what I see in my students is being like, okay, I know you're doing this thing. I know that you have this thing where you are clasping your hands or you're swaying or you're this or you're that. But if you just put your, put your scene partner on the wall and put everything on the scene partner your perform all of that stuff is going to be solved. And I see it over and over and over again. And it's, it's really cool. And encouraging my students to be risky in their work makes me want to be risky in my work because I see in front of me the results. I see them um, taking emotional and vocal and physical risks and their performances of songs just becoming deeper and richer and more connected and more activated. And I just think that there are like different ingredients to telling a story, right? And we can't just, we can't just think that w what we do is the best because we are who we are and our, our training has been ingrained over the past, you know, 15 years. I think it always makes sense to go back to who are you talking to? What do you want? Uh, how do you get it? And what's standing in your way? Do you win or do you lose? Mm -hmm. What are the stakes? You know? 100%. It's so important, especially when we, I feel like, when we really want like a really big job, it becomes about like, let me show you all the cool things that I can do or the things I can do with my voice or like all the like emotional stuff that I can do or, you know, and you, you forget that actually, like, I think what a lot of people have been saying on the podcast is like actually just telling the story in the clearest way is actually what everyone's looking for. Not for people to do like acting gymnastics or, you know, to like uh. do all the things. So I, I just like love I love hearing that. And your students are so lucky to have you as a teacher, to, you know, telling them that. I'm having the best time. I'm having the best time. And I love what you just said. It's almost like stripping away affectation um, for the sake of clarity. Mm -hmm. you know, know the story you're telling first before you, before you do tricks around it. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right, now let's talk about what everyone wants to hear about and let's talk about Mean Girls because I kind of want to like slowly back up. So you were on the tour playing Janice in Mean Girls and talk a little bit about, I think people are just like so wanting to know about how it kind of came to a halt for so many people. Like what was it like, you know, I was in a show that closed March 1st, which was just crazy that it happened then. But even those like since Valentine's Day, it was like, okay, no backstage tours, like sanitizing the dressing rooms every night. And then like it kind of progressively got a little more serious until my show closed. But like, what was it like at Mean Girls? Where were you? And then like, how did you finally find out that like it was all coming to an end? Right. We were in Florida and we were, I think we started in Orlando and what did we, Tampa we were playing those houses and they were packed full. And then we got to Fort Lauderdale and Fort Lauderdale is like cruise ship capital. And we were there when that princess cruise ship docked with all of those people who had COVID. It was like the first, one of the first outbreaks right down there. Wow. And so Broward County in Fort Lauderdale was on like a high risk alert. And um, we had been hearing about it more down in Florida than up in New York, but everyone was still like, uh, are we going to go on like a week layoff? Are we not going to play Tempe? Are we going to, what's going to happen? Some people were like, uh, I know that some tours have layoffs and some tours don't have layoffs, but I had never been on a tour with layoffs before. 
um, except for like hair, which was non-equity. Um, and people were like, it's time to have a layoff anyway. And I was like, I don't think that's actually what this is going to be. I don't know if we should be excited about stopping the show right now. Um, but what we saw is less and less people at the show. And it was eerie. So, but it, we started um, in Fort Lauderdale and it was just like 80%, 70%, 60%, 50%, 40%. And we had, we were used to playing sold out houses. So it was wild just to look out. And it was the kind of theater where they had the little plaques on the top of the seats. So you could see every single empty seat. Ugh, that's the worst. It was nuts and so we were like what are we doing why at first we were like i wonder if the company is not taking care of us like are we being put in danger are we and they had they had stopped the stage door they had stopped everyone like no one could come backstage um but we were in florida and it was spring break like people were everywhere so no one was really that phased by it and i remember trevor my boyfriend went to brindy carlisle one night um, while I was in the show and he said there were like it was 30% full at a Brandy Carlisle concert and he was you in the know something's wrong when a Brandy Carlisle concert only has 30% capacity <laughs> yeah and she addressed it she was like this has thank you for coming this has been happening more and more and we don't know what the future is going to look like and thank you for coming she addressed it and so we kind of once I heard that I figured that we would not be going to New Orleans. We would not be going to Tempe. Um, I did not think it was going to be this long. Mm. And um, so Broadway closed the night before we did. And we still had a show that night. And then we had a show the next night. And we kind of, I don't want to speak for the whole Mean Girls cast, but I think we knew it was our last show. And we went out with a bang. Like it was, the whole cast was on fire because we were just trying to like whatever we had left in us, whatever we were saving for the rest of the weekend, for the rest of the run for the next six months, we just like laid it all out. It was really like a kind of beautiful execution of the show for, you know, 15 people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, and then the next day we had a put in for a vacation swing and we all went in and did the put in and packed up our trunks. And I had been freaking out a little bit because I'm an alarmist. So I had booked a, a flight, even though they hadn't canceled the show yet, I had booked a flight for the next night. And so I packed my crap and I brought it to the theater for the put in and then they released us and I drove to the airport and went home. Good for you. It was crazy. So we had like a big meeting with all the Mean Girls producers, everyone sitting on the stage, like saying it's, it's in everyone's best interest to following the Broadway league and other than that, we haven't had, it's just like everyone else, we haven't had any real sort of updates. We haven't had anyone telling us what they're doing to try to get us back. Or, you know, I just got an email today that my trunk is coming on Wednesday. And so for people who don't know, your trunk is like what you put all of your worldly possessions in when you go on the road to bring on the road and it sits in the trunk. And it's been sitting in the trunk in Kansas City for four months now, for almost five months now. And they're finally sending us our trunks home. Wild wild and it's going to be so surreal to see it and get it and be like that's all my stuff on the road with all my tour stickers all of my mm. you know crazy yeah and then the other thing robbie is like they say I, I i could be wrong about this and if i am wrong someone reach out and tell me but i think that there were like a couple days where you could say if you're a principal that you don't want to come back and complete your contract and i missed that but i didn't like i can't imagine still being on tour in 2022 because I have six months left of my contract yeah and we were supposed to play Nashville in September and my friends just got the notification that Nashville was rescheduled for January of 2022 crazy well I think yeah. that's gonna happen because I was just talking uh to someone that we both know and he was saying that everyone's contracts are going to have like come up during this time. Like when was your contract supposed mm -hmm. to end next month? Yeah. So like literally everyone is going to have to like renegotiate their contracts. And what that means is like, you know, you're going to renegotiate like how long you're going to be on tour, but also like 
how much you're being paid is going to be renegotiated. And I was talking to like another actor that's on currently was on Broadway. And he was like, I know that what I was making is not going to be what they're going to offer me coming back because they need to keep the doors open. They know that people, they're not going to be selling to like the capacity that like every theater was selling before. And that like producers are probably going to be, paying um minimums you know whereas opposed to like a lot of people are not used to making minimum so it's going to be like a crazy world for people who you know when that time comes to like talk about you know what it's going to be like going forward and how long you want to do it and for everyone so yeah and at least you're still you're on an equity tour i mean like you know, we, you know, someday Mean Girls will go non-equity and like, just like so many tours. So it's just, it's going to be interesting what's going to happen going forward. Unfortunately, it's going to be hard for everybody. I think it's going to be hard for everybody. It's either going to be really, I think it'll be really hard for a long time, but then I have to believe that it's going to be like the roaring twenties. Like it's going to be like, everybody's want to go to theater, like sold out houses, new shows. Like I just, I just have to, I, I can't let myself go the other way. I have to believe that it's going to be spectacular and like full of vibrancy and electricity and like life changing art. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that on the other side, shows are going to be like very expertly recorded like Hamilton was. And yeah, show Mean Girls on Disney Plus or on Amazon. And then actors will be making money that way through residuals. And like as a theater actor to get residuals is like unheard of. But I just think that like that will also be supplementing actors salaries in the future because i think people for sure on edge about this you know all happening again well and then the other thing is when i watched hamilton or when i watched shrek or kinky boots on broadway hd or um spongebob on amazon i i didn't not want to see those shows anymore it made me want to see them in person even more Mm -hmm. you know i think that the argument of of bootlegging or of um, like recording shows is that if people see it, they won't want to go and sit in the theater and see it. And I actually think it's the opposite. I feel like if you give people, it's just like when you listen to an album, you want to go see that artist live. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you see Hamilton on Disney Plus, you want to go and experience it in person yourself. You want to know what the next level of that is. Yeah, 100%. So I don't know why we're not doing that already. Yeah. I yeah. think that that I think that you're right. I think that will be the what we see going forward in the future. Speaking of the future, I want to go talk about the past. Um, Great. So you grew up outside of Philly, and then you went to Syracuse. Um, but I just want to like talk just kind of briefly about how you found the theater, and then your decision to go to Syracuse, and then kind of how that led you to moving to New York, just kind of talk about your path just a little bit, just so people can get like a frame of reference of, you know, kind of how you got to where you are. Yeah. I, I like to joke that I was never really good at anything else, but I never really tried to be good at anything else because I was so obsessed with theater. I was like, thank God the internet didn't exist in the way it does now um, when I was a kid, because I would have been so weird. Um, I went to Catholic school and um, on our dress down days, I had three t-shirts in rotation and those three t-shirts were Wicked, Rent, and Phantom of the Opera. Um, and like, I remember for one Christmas, my mom gave me a karaoke machine with like best of Broadway musicals, karaoke CD so that I could sing along in my bedroom. I was just obsessed and I was obsessed with singing and I would, I would skip a lot of class so that I could you know, teach myself how to sight sing or work on, I did a lot of choirs, like competitive choirs. So like all Easterns, all states, like that type of thing in Pennsylvania and beyond. And I had a teacher, Chuck Keating, who would move obstacles out of the way for me so that I could, um, I could be the best that I could and be the best in the area and be the best in the state and just experience that, feel, feel the high of that. And and the getting better and the being in front of a crowd. And um, I just lived for it. And he can, he convinced my parents that 
I should go to musical theater school because that's what I wanted to do. But they were always like, you should, you know, you need a minor or you need a this, or maybe you should go for a liberal arts education. And he was like, no, if she's going to do it, she has to go full, like whole hog musical theater. And so that's how, um, that's how I went to Syracuse. I remember I was at all Eastern um, chorus conference when I got the call from Syracuse and they were like, they were like, you were one of our first picks. That's what they said in the call, Robbie. And I was just, that's exactly what I wanted to hear, you know? And then I remember going and seeing the school and I went and saw, I went and saw Syracuse with Angela Travin. Angela Trevino. Another Syracuse star. Star. And and I remember everyone cheered when we walked in because they were doing like, it was doing a lab on Wednesday. And she and I and my mom went and had like pasta at Phoebe's. Of course, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. And so it was just, I was so in love with the school and in love with the idea of doing my final semester in New York City, um, the Tepper semester, which was, you know, so sort of transformative, working with Daisy Prince and um, James Clary and going to one of our classes you remember was going to see two shows a week and then talking about them on Fridays it was such a cool experience and really really remarkable and then to just have that that place to land I do remember it was hard that we lived in the Trump Towers um, yes. on the west side and so when we moved I decided to stay in the summertime and I moved into a sub a Craigslist sublet in Bushwick with like a naked yogi who had a dog (laughs) and I was working at Tortilla Flats down by the High Line and it was just I mean talk about graduating and just going like face first into what I wanted but it was it was it was a long way to get from graduating to Wicked you know yes I know I mean we live together I like went to New Hampshire to do like non-equity summer stock that summer and came back and needed a place to live. And we started living together for like most of that next year. And people are always like, why don't you eat red meat? Like literally always. Like I was just talking to someone about it last week. They're like, why don't you eat red meat? Why don't you eat pork? And I always go, well, my roommate that I was living with after I graduated was like almost vegan and like but would eat cheese and then would make all these amazing meals when I would come home from waiting tables. And uh, then I like just totally loved it. And to this day, I don't eat red meat or pork because of you. <laughs> and now you do, <laughs> but I just always think of you because that like year out of uh, the first year out of school, like I think it's important for people to hear that. Like, you know, for people like you that are like uber successful right now, like it, it happens for some people. It happened for some people in our class being on Broadway right after graduating, but like that's not a marker of your success or like, you know, I think when, when we were younger, we thought, Oh, like if I didn't, if it didn't happen by now, or if someone didn't, if I didn't go into that audition and people aren't, you know, begging me to be in their shows by now, you know, my learning is probably done. Like I got out of school and I finished learning and now I'm doing it, but that's so not true. And you and I spent that year, like, just (laughs) living, you know, living in New York and, like, doing, like, side hustles and everything. Oh, my gosh. We're taking classes. We took so many classes. Which is so important. Uh, And then talk a little bit about, like, for me, the first big job for you was the tour of hair because you, it was, like, such a great part for you. And I just remember when you were going through the auditions, you went through, like, 11 auditions or something. Oh my gosh, Robbie. Well, it was in that phase of like the first two or three years after graduating that me and Melissa Jessel would trade off signing each other up on lists. So we would like go at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning and stand outside. So like, if you guys are doing that right now, you're doing it. It's good. I know it's hard, but it gets better. Like we, we would get there at four o'clock, five o'clock, sign our name on the list, sit with the list, make sure that the person took it and then go home and take a nap and then come back or wait around all day for hours just to get seen. And it was one of those days where I remember I brought like um, like a trash bag to sit on outside because it was kind of cold and I didn't <laughs> want my butt to get like, didn't want my butt to freeze before the Starbucks opened. So that was my thing. I'd always bring like a towel and a trash bag to sit on along with like my huge binder and all the clothes I needed for the day. Um, 
And uh, I think I was number, I was in the 40s or something out of 700 girls that got seen that day. And then somehow I got called back. And then I got called back again. And then I got called back again. And I remember seeing like Sheila understudy on my resume and being like, no, I don't want the understudy. And then it must have been, yeah, like six or seven times in. And it was down to me and one other girl. And I don't know why they went with me, but they did. And I was just like so excited about it. I'll never forget. I think I was the first person they cast too. And I remember they called and they were like, um, hey, Mary Kay Morrissey, blah, blah, blah. Um, we want you to be our Sheila. And I was like, just freaking out. It was amazing. And then I had a whole thing. Do you remember when I did Fun Home right after that? I, well, I auditioned for Fun Home right after that. Yes. And so I went to Sundance and did Fun Home with like, you know, Beth Malone and Raul Esparza played the dad and like all these things. And they were like, you should get your equity card from this, we can give you your equity card. And I was like, but I just booked this big non-equity show and I want to go and perform in Tokyo. And I, I am excited to do the bus and truck thing because I think it'll make me strong. Um, and so I figured out that you can defer your card for a certain amount of time. And so I deferred my card to the very end of the contract and then um, got to do both, which was so, so awesome. So cool. So, awesome. so cool. Yeah, but... That hair, that hair show was no joke. That was like, wake up at eight, get on the bus, get off the bus at five, go for a run, do the show, get back on the bus for an hour in the direction of the next city you're going to. Crazy. It's stuff like that. When I, when I was playing Alphaba and people would complain about travel days and we would get like a full day of travel day and then we would get a day off and then we would get um, like a day off and then soundcheck and I people would like be like tired or whatever. I would always just be like, ah, plebeians, you don't know. <laughs> and you're the one that's you playing Alphaba. Like you are the person that like, gets to like be tired. <laughs> I was always tired. <laughs> um, well, you were so brilliant in hair. I remember like you went off on the hair tour and I went to San Diego for grad school at like the same time. And yeah. then I came and saw you in like Thousand Oaks or something. Yeah. So oh my gosh. So let's talk about Wicked. Like, I think that I love talking to you about Wicked and like everyone else <laughs> wants to talk about it too. So, but, and and I think it's important for like, you know, if you're listening and you want to play Elphaboat or you like want to play like some big kind of iconic role, you're going to hear that like not everyone's path, you know, everyone had a different path to like the part and everyone had a different experience in like the, you know, the auditions and everything that led up to it. And so, but I think hearing different perspectives maybe will help you, you know, other people feel like, you know, how to find their way or like what to expect or what to do. Because I think I'm right in saying that the, like when you got the standby, that wasn't your first time going in for Wicked. Is that right? It was my second. Yeah. Which I think is yeah. in like, so you went in for Wicked at one point. And you didn't get it. I went in for Wicked. Yeah, when I was doing Elmer Gantry down at the Signature Theater, which was like a folk show, I was singing really, really low mm -hmm. and a lot of like yodeling and vocal flipping and things like that. So they called me in for Elphaba for the standby track and I went in and I bombed because I hadn't been singing in like my regular mix range. I was singing in a totally different range and you can't just like trick your voice into going back up after a month of using it in a different way mm -hmm. and so they were like the my feedback was she can't sing it <laughs> yeah and so then which is crazy and I was like okay all right great and I think you know like for forever since college people had been telling me that I was going to play the role like when Julia Marnie came to Syracuse, they had me sing The Wizard and I in front of her. People have been telling me that. And I was always like, no, I don't think I can. Like, I, I don't think I can do it. And so I, so as soon as they were like, she can't sing it, I was like, great, I can let this one go. Everyone, they said I can't sing it. We're letting it go. Everyone, friends, we're letting it go. And then they called me in again. And How actually, I think Christopher pushed me in. It was like, mm, it must have been like three or four months later. Okay, so it was like... So clearly it wasn't like, you know, they, you know, Craig Burns probably remembered you, you know, it wasn't like they didn't yeah. remember. So they gave you a second shot and you just mentioned Christopher, one of 
our agents. Shout out to Christopher. Yeah. Um, hey, at CGF. And uh, so he pushed you and got you in the room again. And then, and then I guess like, what was the second experience like? Obviously you probably, your voice was kind of more back to that range or what do you feel yeah, like? Yeah, it was, it was back to that range. And I had been working with someone new and I remember I went in, it was like my second time in and of the, the second time of the second time to a yeah. to B um, and the casting director made me sing it made me sing the end of Defying Gravity six times. That's no joke. That's no joke. And then the feedback that he gave Christopher was, well, I'm not going to be the one who tells her no. Amazing. Which is like, which is like good and bad. It's like, I'm not going to be the one to tell her no. So I'll just push her along to the next. Yeah. So then I went in for one more callback. And I, at the time I was doing um, a workshop with Donna Vivino. Uh-huh. Iconic Elphaba. And she had been like walking me through the seat, the sides and um, encouraging me. And our presentation for the um, workshop I was doing was like the day of my final callback. <laughs> and, and I remember like, talk about leaving them wanting more or not being desperate or whatever. Cause I remember walking in and being like, this is the only time I have, like, I have, I have 15 minutes. Let's go, you know, let's, Let's sing it and let's go. And then I left and then they offered me the gig. Amazing. Which was awesome. Did you have yeah. to sing it six times? So, no, I only had to sing everything once. Oh, great. <laughs> Which was awesome. And then like we're, Lisa Lugulio is the um, associate director on Wicked and she's just so, so fantastic and such a good director as well. So she kind of would give me adjustment, adjustments in the room and, um, you know, help me to find my alphabet, which is kind of what they encourage and look for. Um, but being on the road for that first, like, 14 months as the standby, I thought it's hard whenever I see them put an alphabet in right away without having them standby first. I'm always a little bit nervous for the alphabet because as the standby, you get to watch an alphabet go through it. You get to be their right-hand man. You get to... Um, learn from them, learn their tips, learn their tricks, like learn from their mistakes, watch them fail, watch them fly. And, and it's, it was such a good learning experience for me that when I took over the role, I felt like I knew how to treat my standby. I knew how to treat myself. I knew when to take a show off. I knew, um, I mean, for the most part, playing off of is really hard. So you're just doing the best you can anyway. Um, but I felt like being a standby lent so much to the experience of taking over the principal track. Um, and I remember I wanted it so bad. I wanted to, I wanted to play her so, so bad. And it was a similar thing when I went in for my final callback for Alphabet as the principal, because they make you audition, even though I had played the part 80 times, they made me audition again, right? And I Crazy. had a flight to Copenhagen that afternoon. How long so after I came in, you got off the tour as the standby? I mean, I think I know that it was like maybe a year, but is that right? Yeah, it was a year. I did Joan of Arc at the Public, and then I worked up at um, Martha's Vineyard, mm -hmm. and then like went, yeah. And I, oh my gosh, I remember going in, and um, I was working at Martha's Vineyard, and I took the Amtrak train down for my second to last callback. And I thought I did well. I remember being like, okay, I know I just sang the crap out of that. I feel really good about it. And I was sitting out in Times Square. It was when Telsey had moved their offices, like kind of recently, like during that time. And so it was still through its construction to front, whatever. And I was sitting in Times Square and with my alphabet packet. And I was just like starting to cry because I was like, here I am in Times Square auditioning for alphabet. And a girl walked out of Telsey and goes, is talking to her mom and she goes, well, some girl like went in before me and just like sang the crap out of it. So I'm definitely not going to get it. And I knew she was talking about me because I recognized her and I just like burst into tears. And I, it wasn't a thing that was like competitive against her. I needed someone to affirm that I was like in the right place at the right time doing the thing. Mm -hmm. And, and, and she did. And then I remember I was in Prague with Lindsay Van Horn on our backpacking trip and um, Christopher sent me a gift of Kermit the Frog and said, it's not going to be easy being green. Uh, <laughs> I die. Mm -hmm. 
I remember you yeah. like screenshotted it and sent it to me and I was like just so like so happy so cool it was it was we had been staying in hostels up until that point and then we were like now we're gonna stay in hotels <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> so what's the thing that was like you know you watched um these other women play alphabet while you were standing by and then you get into the role where you're playing the role eight times a week and what's the one thing that you didn't expect or kind of couldn't have prepared for or the biggest thing that you learned maybe that you didn't know as the standby i think it was how to have a mid-show call out I think everyone needs to be listening to this, you know. Yeah. So important. Like watching someone have a mid-show call out and being there to support them and the kind of the passing of the role is so, if you can do it in a, like just a slick calculated way, it's so good because it's devastating. It's, devastating and I had four I covered four mid-show call-outs when I was a standby and I had four mid-show call-outs when I was a principal Mm -hmm. so as the standby to take over for your Alfie who like can't do it and is broken like walking on stage and saving the day is the best feeling in the world it is so fun that you're like buzzing with energy and fire and passion and just you have no you have no um option to overthink you just have to do it and those have been some of the best shows I ever gave I feel like when I would cover for my Elfie Mm -hmm. and then what I learned from that going into being the principal when I had my mid shows was that can you just say like what like I think people can like imagine what a mid show call out is but can you just like explain what that actually is yeah. Okay. So I'll tell the story of my very first mid show that I covered. How about that? Great. So the Alphaba that I had been covering for, she it was in her last week, and she had been crying a half an hour at half hour with her best friend because she was leaving her like best best friend on the road, and so she went to sing The Wizard and I, and she went The Wizard and and it wasn't there, and it really really wasn't there, and I was. I was halfway through a frozen burrito doing a crossword puzzle with my friend Kelly LaFarga. We were like in our, she was the swing, the dancer swing. And we were just, just chilling, doing our thing backstage. And we hear the wizard and, you know, and we both look up at the monitor and I look at her and she looks at me and she says, take off all your clothes right now. (laughs) So I fully stripped down naked in the girls dressing room and I'm just standing there waiting for what happens next right and I hear over the intercom MK to the greening room and that's up in the dressing room and so I throw on a robe run into the greening room and at that point you as the up the standby your only job is to stay calm stay calm so I'm in there. There are seven people working around me. Someone is pin curling my hair. Someone is painting my hands. Miss Joyce, our makeup artist, is painting my face. They do as much as they can in as little time as possible. So they can get a girl green in seven minutes. Little known fact. Little known fact. So they put me in the costume, made me green in seven minutes. And um, right before popular, she ran off and I ran on because there's an exit. Uh-huh. So she exited as Elfie and I entered as Elfie. Do you think she, does, does Elphaba like go off and say, I, I think it's pretty obvious when you hear it, but do they say like, get her ready? Or did she know like, that's the moment that she was going to be running off? And I mean, and as mm-hmm. someone that's well, in, that you've been in the other position, is it kind yeah. of like, is it just like a different like exit every time? Or like, do you kind of know what's going to happen or? It's different every time, and it sometimes it takes. It's sometimes it's the theater. Sometimes it's um, it's all. They're always trying to get. Well, as soon as the Elphaba makes her decision that she's not going to finish the show, it's Operation Get Her Off the Stage. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's as fast as you can get her off the stage. So there usually, I think what will happen is that elfie because after after the wizard and i it's a classroom scene with dr Dilliman mm-hmm. into something bad she'll tell nessa 
I'm out. Mm -hmm. And then Nessa will go until stage management to get the standby ready. Mm -hmm. But I have been in positions where I knew I wasn't going to finish. And I would look down at Adam Souza, who is our MD on the road for so long and beloved friend and master encourager. And I would look down at him and, and he would say, are you okay? And I would say, no. And I would see him call down and say, get Chelsea ready. Yeah. So, but I, I mean, but you can call out at any time in the first act. Yeah. So I, I, I've, when I was a standby, I went on during popular, I went on during um, one short day. And then one time I went on and start and just trying to find gravity to the end. That's insane. like ran into the attic is also, but it was insane. It was absolutely insane. I loved what you were saying before. Like the, the biggest thing you learned was how to have a mid show. A mid show. Yeah. Right. So, so then when I was the alphabet and I was in the position where I was doing the show when I shouldn't have been, or I thought I had it and I didn't have it. I tried to remember the feeling of being the standby and saving the day and like giving her the show and giving her that experience and also getting out of the way of the show, not being able to happen Mm -hmm. and just trying to like have as much grace with it as possible um, and trying not to like seeing that it has happened to so many other girls before me, having like a little bit like cutting myself some slack, mm-hmm. um, knowing that it's just like a part of the job. And it wasn't always that way. I mean, there, there were like two mid shows that were particularly devastating to me mentally and emotionally, but, but the other two, I remember it, it's business. Mm-hmm. It's just business. It's your job to get out of the way. Let someone, let someone do it. And the other thing I learned from that then is when we went to Mean Girls, we have a standby on Mean Girls, and our, we didn't have any protocol in place for our for, for mid shows. Mm-hmm. So our first mid show switch, I feel like I directed a lot of what happened because I had so much experience in mid shows. I was like, someone get her in pin curls, you put a lash on and start warming up. Where are her costumes? And like, I, I felt like I was directing things to happen along with my stage management, but it gave me, and, and it not only let me like encourage and help get our standby on the stage, it let me talk to our star who is a close friend and say, Hey, this is okay. You're doing, you're doing the right thing. You're doing this for you and for the show and cut yourself some slack. Like it was, a, it's a funny way that I feel like your experiences. I don't know. I feel like we're given experiences for the things that we're going to need in the future. We're, we cultivate skills like in our path for a reason. And it all culminated in this like mean girls um, switch, which switch, if you will. Um, So I feel like, yeah, Wicked prepared me for that big time. It must feel good. Like healing from the, from the trauma of like having to call out, but being able to like turn that exactly what you're saying and like to help someone else and to like, be like, it Mm. is okay. It's going to be okay. This happens. I imagine that's also healing for you too, to, to be able to. Yeah, it definitely, it gave me like so much closure on the whole experience because I had a, I had a mid show my like second to last week at Wicked and I didn't know if I was going to go back. I didn't know if I was going to finish my contract because I had bronchitis and an ear infection and the altitude was crazy because we were in Albuquerque and I still tried to do the show. And you would finish Defying Gravity every show like, ah! and then they would have to bring a paper bag and an oxygen mask for me because there was, there was just no air. And so I was like, I don't like... Ha- like I've made it this far and it's already been so hard and it has to end in the hardest city. And I didn't know if I would ever finish, but then it's just like, and, and that was the second part of encouraging our star to go back. It's like, it's going to be okay. You're not going to have another mid, like mid show right away. It's You just have to get back on the horse. You just have to get back in on the stage and do your job and fight through kind of like a P- PTSD of it. Mm-hmm. And it will make you stronger. Like and it, it did. I love that we're talking about this. It's not something I like thought that we would talk about, but I love that we are because I think that like on social media recently, a lot of actors have come out and talked about vocal health and about calling out of shows and understudies. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you do anything wrong and it's just kind of bringing awareness to the fact that we're all human and, I think it helps other people that are younger understand like 
if you have a bad day or if you have a bad audition or if like you're going through something vocally, it doesn't define you and you can come back from it. And, you know, when we were in college and we were looking at like all of our idols that had the most amazing voices, it's like, yeah, but everyone has off days. Everyone has weaknesses. And that doesn't mean that they're any less amazing. It just kind of makes them more human. But we weren't really talking about vocal health then. So we just thought, oh, they must never have off days. So I'll never be, I'll never be like them. You know, like you saying, oh, I, I don't think I can play Elphaba because of the range, but then you were able to, you know, it's, it's just, it's important that people (laughs) know that it's not all rosy and that it's. No, it's it's really not. And the other thing, Robbie, is like, that just reminded me, we've been talking about like vocal, like some people say that these Broadway roles are like the Olympics of musical theater, right? Mm -hmm. Like Broadway athletes, like you're a vocal athlete and you're playing at a professional level. And I think that what people don't understand is like when we talk about athletes playing at a professional level the resources available to them like they can play with a sprain because they have people off off the field who are ready to take care of them right away take care of their sprain physical therapy um like icing just the medical staff for a sports team is different than it is for a broadway show so if we're talking about how our voice, our, it, like our vocal cords or our muscle that we use, that we play with, and if it's bruised or strained or anything like that, it's not like we have a whole team off stage at, at our company taking care of that. Mm-hmm. It's like so much of the work we have to do on our own. It's stressful. It's like a lot of actors have intense relationships with ENTs because th- that's our support system, but that's not like funded by your job. It's, And it's something that I I would like to see change in the Broadway community, especially now that people are speaking out about vocal health. It's like, well, if you can have someone taking care care of dancers' bodies offstage, you should have like a voice technician offstage. Mm -hmm. Like the voice is just as important as the body in in musical theater. 100%. Absolutely. And I I think if we had that at Wicked, there would be a lot less mid-show call-outs. A lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot less people creating injuries and, you know. Yeah. So, you know, we're nearing the end of our time, but it's. I just wanted to talk about your Mean Girls audition too because I just, you know, <laughs> part of this is, you know, I'm doing the podcast to talk about the business and I just think that, like, there's no one path to getting a part and mm-hmm. I remember, like, you calling me and just telling me about, like, your Mean Girls audition and my mind just kind of being blown just because I was like, well, of course <laughs> she's going to get the part that way. And and you never kind of know what's going to happen. You know, you, I kind of just want you to tell the story, but like you were thinking like when you first got the appointment, it wasn't for Janice and you were like, maybe I shouldn't even go in for this, but you did. Yeah. And look what happened. And so I just wanted to know if you could just like kind of talk about that story a little bit. Um, I remember Christopher called me and he said, they want to see you to replace Taylor Louderman as Regina George. And I was like, um, call them back. <laughs> like, call them back. And he did. And he called them back. And so he, he calls me again. He's, this is what they want to see you as Regina. And I found out later, they wanted to see me as Regina because they didn't want to, they didn't want the creative team to see me as a standby. Um, they wanted me only to be seen as like a principal part. So they put mm-hmm. me up for something that was, you know, maybe not perfect, but still in the principal light. But so he says, um, you need to buy something pink. Please, please, MK, wear something tight. And do not wear sneakers. Please do not wear sneakers <sighs> to this audition. Because he knows me, because that's, that's who I am. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? And so I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. So I'm starting to freak. I know I can sing the part, but I don't, it's just a little, it's out of my wheelhouse, right? A little bit. So I, I got a coach. I worked with Will Blum, who was a brilliant coach. And he uh, had me, he had me saying, I'm a sexy baby over and over again. Like I'm a sexy baby. And so I went in and I'm in like my pink leather jacket and like skinny jeans and white heels. And I have pink hair at the time too. 
and I know I sing the crap out of it, and, but then we go to the scenes, and I'm like, oh my god, I love your bracelet. Where did you go? <laughs> like it was just, <laughs> just like so hat on a hat on a hat on a hat. And oh, also, I walk into the room, and it's everybody. It's Casey Nicola and Tina Fey and Mary Mitchell Campbell and Jeff Richards and uh. Uh, it's Nell. It's everybody. It was, and I was freaking out. I was like. Hi, Tina Fey. Nice to meet you. Like, no. Oh, my gosh. Okay, now I'm going to sing Regina for you. And so I finished the Regina packet, and Tina goes, do you have the Janice packet? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't have the Janice packet because you guys wanted to see me for a Regina, and I even called and made sure that was true, and that's true. And so she's like, okay, well, can you just, like, cold read it? So they give me the scenes and they give me I'd Rather Be Me. And of course I knew I'd Rather Be Me because Jenna Claire and I had listened to the soundtrack like every day since it came out um, mm-hmm. and just like rock out to it all the time. So I knew I'd Rather Be Me. So I sang that. And then I remember the scene was like uh, the scum sucking fart mouth life ruiner. And they were like, oh, yes. Right. And I, and I was, uh, this is must be my lucky charm, but I was on my way to, Denver to do another gig and Christopher called me in line and they gave me the job the next day which is crazy imagine they gave me Janice the next day imagine being him and like not knowing what happened in the room and all of a sudden it's like well she went (laughs) and she came back after one audition and like booked the other lead so I know that's so cool but it just like when you're so right for something and you're yourself. I knew it too. I knew it. I, that's why I was like, call them back. That's not the part I'm going to play. I'm going to play Janice. It's going to be great. What, what's happening? And I love that everyone in the room recognized that right away. Even though I was dressed as my own Regina, they were like, this girl has pink hair and she's wearing a leather jacket. Like, what's happening? Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, it, and I remember Christopher was like, you're not going to like this, but they want you to go back on the road. Because I had only been back for two months. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I can commit to that. He was like, it's in eight months. In eight months, you're going to want to go back on the road. You're a road dog. And so I was like, okay, fine. Let's do it. Yeah. But so, like when you're originating, it must be so different, like originating a role on a first national tour, as opposed to like going in and replacing like in Wicked. It's like you had like a full rehearsal process. and Yeah, the whole, uh, they changed the show too. They changed the show with our past and it was like Casey and Tina Fey the whole time. It was so cool. I'm obsessed with Casey Nicola. I think he's such a creative genius. And he just casts people on his shows that he loves and he lets them run wild. He like let my imagination run wild and never asked me to do what Barrett did. He always was like, well, how would MK as Janice do this? How, in your version of this story, how does this feel? When you're saying I'd rather be me, what are you talking about? And I felt like, that is what makes him such a brilliant director that he really, he trusts his actors to like bring the characters to life. And then we'll just like move them where, move them in the right direction and, and peel layers back or put layers on. And I just think he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's totally brilliant. I think he had like 28 shows on Broadway last year or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last quick thing I just want to ask is about, and I, I like, this is like a new thing that I've started asking everyone and it's just been super cool um to hear people say but what is something about the business specifically like the craft aside the technique aside what's something about the business you wish you knew when we were living together when we were 21 you know what is something that maybe you've learned or that you you just kind of think would have been helpful to know Mm -hmm. because the business is so mysterious and you know we're learning about it constantly because it's changing constantly and you'll probably have a different answer in 10 years after you and your tony award but like what's something right now like you feel like man that would be that would have been really helpful to know i think that i would have wanted to know that talent is not enough that you need to be working harder than everybody else and if you're not working as hard as you possibly can you need to come to terms with the fact that someone else is working harder than you even if you are working as hard as you can someone else is working harder than you someone else is hungrier than you and someone else is fighting harder so you have to just keep pushing and and 
always be memorized, always like be, try to be a step ahead of your career. So like prepare for the roles that you want um, and, and don't waste time. I would say like work hard, be cool. Be ni- you don't, ha- you don't have to be friends with everybody. I feel like when people are like, just be nice, be a nice person. You don't have to be friends with everybody. I feel like people tell that to women too. You can be yourself, be strong, work hard and be cool and just be professional. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I love that hundred percent. Like this is a marathon of hard work that we are yeah. all doing. So, and you do it so well. And I think I came to see you play off of a <laughs> four times. So <laughs> I like am such a huge fan and was gonna see you and Mean Girls in LA when we were going to be in LA together. And that was like one of the saddest parts of this whole thing was not having that opportunity to spend a month with you in LA, but I can't wait to see you play the part. And I know you're going to be brilliant and I'll be your biggest fan always watching you. And I'm so happy that we are still wonderful friends because you're such a incredible addition to my life. So Mm, I love you deep. I can't wait to give you the biggest hug. MK, Mary Kay, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I so, so, so appreciate it. And maybe we'll do like a follow-up at some point too. So would love that. And all the info for the double name witches class, I'm gonna post in the show notes at the episode and post stuff on the Instagram and the Facebook because if you want to learn more and work hard, just like we were just talking about, then this is totally the class for you. So uh, all that info will be like on the website and the show notes. All right. Thank you, MK. Thank you, Robbie. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com. And connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!